So have you ever had to write somebody an apology note? <laughs> Maybe this week you had to apologize somehow? <laughs> Hunter Jobbins is a college student in Kansas. Got out to his car the other day and found a note of apology. And this is what it said. Saw Kit Kat in your cup holder. I love Kit Kat, so I checked your door and it was unlocked. Did not take anything other than the Kit Kat. I am sorry and hungry. <laughs> guy stole his Kit Kat candy bar. <laughs> now here's the thing. That guy should go back by his car. Because if he would go back by his car, he would discover that the Hershey Company found out about Hunter's story and sent him 6,500 brand new Kit Kat candy bars. So that cat burglar might want to go check the car one more time. He might find him some more chocolate. Erin Hatsey also got an apology note on her car. Hers was a little more unique when she got to the note. This is what it said. Hello. So sorry I stole your car. I sent my friend with my key to pick up my red Subaru at 7802 Southeast Woodstock, and she came back with your car. I did not see the car until this morning, and I said, that's not my car. Here's some cash for gas, and I more than apologize for the shock and upset this must have caused you. If you need to speak further with me, I am, and she gave her name, and my number is blank. So, so sorry for this mistake. Sure enough, she sent her friend over to the exact same neighborhood and the friend got the wrong address and the wrong car and took the wrong car. The police got involved. They got involved with everybody who was associated. They confirmed everything that happened. They even confirmed that somehow that worn out key from one Subaru fit the other Subaru. So I don't encourage you to go steal any cars with your old Subaru keys, but the reality is somehow that old key worked in the wrong car. So Aaron got an apology note. She got her car back, and she got $30 in gas money, so she ended up okay. So we have a, a crime with a candy wrapper that's wrapped in red inside of a car, and then we have an almost crime that happened with a red car. It leads to me to believe that the elves might want to keep an eye on that sleigh. There's something with red going on. There's another kind of apology that doesn't involve us writing a note trying to make amends for something that we have done wrong. It's a different kind of apology. It's not about what we've done wrong. It's an apology about what we think is right, the things that we believe. It's an apology that can be written down with pen and paper. That's possible. But, but the reality is this kind of apology really is, is more clearly seen in our attitudes and in our actions. And in this category of apologies, there is an ultimate apology. And this ultimate apology has been written in red. But this red cannot be stolen. So what kind of apology is this? Well, let's find out. Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 11. Jesus says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. So Jesus is standing in a crowd of maybe three to 7,000 people, maybe a little bigger. And in that crowd, there's some people who are indifferent to Jesus. There's some people who are disgusted with Jesus. And there are some people who are devoted to Jesus. And so in this crowd, for the people who are close enough to hear, Jesus tells them, 
you're going to have to give an apology. You're going to have to give a defense. You're going to have to give an answer. For what? What are they going to have to give an answer for? They're going to have to give an answer for what they believe. So why do you believe what you believe? When it comes to how the earth came to be, when it comes to how humans came to be, why do you believe what you believe? When it comes to the way that you vote, why do you vote the way you vote? When it comes to the way you spend your money, why do you spend your money that way? When it comes to what you do away from work at nighttime and on the weekends, why do you spend your time that way? Why do you teach your kids and your grandkids those principles that you're teaching them? Why do you do these things? An answer, a defense, an apology. And so who in this crowd was going to have to give this kind of apology? Who in this crowd was going to have to give this kind of answer or this kind of defense? Well, pretty much anybody who can hear Jesus. The people who were indifferent to Jesus, they might have to give an answer to somebody around them about why they were there and why they were hanging around if they really didn't care about what Jesus was saying. The people who were disgusted with Jesus, they might have to give an answer to somebody about why they were hanging around when they were rejecting what Jesus had to say. And the devoted people, well, they might have to give an answer to either the indifferent or the disgusted or or somebody else about why they were hanging around and why they believed in what Jesus was saying. And so temporarily, they might all have to give some kind of answer. But beyond the temporary, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, on purpose put this phrase in his book. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So eventually, and ultimately, the indifferent toward Jesus will have to give an answer for why they practically and emotionally and financially preferred more their family or their friends or their social life or social media or sports or travel or their job or video games or yard work or their pets or anything else that you could put in the category. Why they preferred those things more and why they were apathetic toward the one who created them why they were apathetic toward his gospel. The indifferent will have to answer to God. The disgusted will also have to answer. They will have to to answer for why they practically and emotionally and financially made a decision to reject Jesus. Some of them rejecting him in such a way that they they organized a, a huge political protest to actually get him crucified and executed. And some, they just took those principles and they they kept believing in, they kept building their lives around those same rejecting principles. The disgusted will answer to God. And the devoted, well, they're kind of answering to God. They're already saying why they practically and emotionally and financially are following Jesus because they are saying they believe that Jesus is the greatest treasure in the universe, the source of ultimate salvation and satisfaction. So in a way, because of who Jesus is and because of their commitment to him, the devoted are already answering to God. But just to be clear, we're not just talking about the crowd 2,000 years ago standing around Jesus. See, everyone in this crowd here will have to answer to God. In fact, every single person in any crowd ever at any point in history, past, present, future, will have to answer to God. Indifferent, disgusted, 
or devoted. Jesus, though, here is pretty specifically talking to those devoted to him. Others are hearing, but Jesus is talking to the devoted. And his first opening phrase is something that would have a pretty big impact on someone's devotion. Listen to it again. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. That's how Jesus starts off. It's a very matter-of-fact statement, too. He doesn't say if. He says when. So when they threaten to kick you out of their church. When you get arrested for being connected to me. When you get dragged into court for your Christianity. When the government tells you that Sunday church is illegal. When you face jail time or execution because of your faith. When those things happen. That's how Jesus starts off. Now granted, none of those things sound fantastic to us, right? I mean, the reality is is we wouldn't want those things to happen. but, But Jesus is pretty clear. Christians should not expect to have widespread support. Christians should not expect to have government-sponsored religious freedom. According to Jesus, we shouldn't expect any of those things. According to Jesus, we should expect persecution. At the very least, we should expect social pushback. That's what we should expect for following Jesus. Now, if we continue to have religious freedom, man, fantastic. That's wonderful. If for some reason we were not to continue to have it, our hope should not change. Why? Because our hope is built on nothing less than America's laws and the religious right. Is that how the hymn goes? (laughs) No, it's a little different. Edward Moat said it this way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame or sweetest frame laws, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. So we praise God for our sweet framed laws. We praise God that we continue to be stunned and amazed with the freedom that we get from those sweet frame laws. We continue to be humbled and thankful for the men and women of our armed forces who day in and day out for hundreds of years have given their time and their energy, their effort, some even given their lives to protect those laws, to defend them against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We are thankful, immensely thankful. And we should use the freedom that we have to boldly and joyfully live out our faith. We should use our freedom to make sure that the gospel spreads to our own homes and homes in our community and homes on the other side of the world. We should use our freedom. But death ultimately will separate us from that freedom. See, we won't be here to be protected. We won't be here to enjoy those liberties. And so spiritually and physiologically, we are not able to put our total trust into any power that only has power on this earth. That's what this conversation is about. Jesus is trying to communicate to his closest friends, hey, you guys need to wholly trust in me. Now don't miss the W there. This is not holy, holy, holy. This is is holy. This is completely, this is absolutely, this is fully, this is entirely, this is utterly. This is a 
a trust that goes beyond just a casual trust. This is devoting your entire life to the truth of who Jesus is. That's how Jesus talked. And how did he get them to initially think about this trust? How was he going to try to get them to wholly trust in him? He starts off by saying, by the way, you're going to be arrested. (laughs) By the way, you're going to be dragged in front of courts at church and courts in the community. That's not exactly a fantastic recruiting tool, right? Imagine, if you will, a a dad on Thanksgiving Day, and he walks into his five-year-old son. He goes, hey, buddy, I got a great idea for us tomorrow. Why don't me and you go shopping at the mall for Black Friday? Let's do that. Sounds fun. And so he proceeds to tell him, here's what we're going to do, buddy. Tomorrow when we get there to the mall, I'm going to give you a stopwatch, you know, a little digital one you can put around your neck. And, and what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to push that button, and then we're going to go our separate ways. You go do whatever you want to go do, and then I'll go do whatever I'm going to do, and, and that stopwatch will, will start running. And little buddy, when you see all nines across the front of that stopwatch, I want you to go call that lawyer you hear about on TV, all right? All nines, you call that guy. No, I'm kidding. He tells him, he goes, here's what I want you to do. When you see all nines, you go find me at the food court. I'll be over at Mango Julie's, and I'll just be standing there waiting for you to come over, and, and we'll hang out, and it'll be a good time. But then the dad says this. But, buddy, there's a chance that if people see you walking around by yourself, They might get old Officer Blart from the mall cops, and and he may have to come get me, and and mom and dad may have to go to jail, and you may have to go live with your great Aunt Agatha in an igloo in Alaska. Now, if you're that five-year-old kid, are you thinking, whoo-hoo, let's go to the mall tomorrow? Man, this sounds great. Yeah, Dad, drop me off in a a building, psycho-packed with people crazy stumbling over each other to try to get presents. Yes, Dad, take me there and then leave me alone. Yeah, that sounds fun, Dad. I feel safe and comfortable with that. No, none of that sounds safe or fun or comfortable. And just to be clear, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not dropping his disciples off. He's not, he's not saying, hey, you know what, I, I just don't care about you. No, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the fact that they were going to be dragged in front of political leaders, they're going to be dragged in front of religious leaders, they're going to be dragged in front of juries and, and judges, What he's trying to do is not give them a dire threat about what it means to be with him. He's trying to get them to see the dynamic promise of what it means to be with him. See, Jesus was trying to let them know that they were never going to be alone. They were not going to be left alone somewhere with an eternal stopwatch terrified, looking over their shoulder for mall cops and afraid that they were going to have to go to family court one day. Now, Jesus was trying to let them know that there was something significant happening in their lives. Listen to what he says again in verse 11. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. Don't worry. So Jesus says, don't worry what you're going to say. Don't worry about your defense. Don't worry about your answer. Why? Look at verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So when you're being pressed like you've never been pressed before, Jesus says, don't be afraid. And Jesus says, don't worry. 
Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. And why? Because he wanted them to know they weren't alone. He says, the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say. So what Jesus means here is that you never need to read your Bible again. What Jesus means is you never need to do your morning devotion again. What Jesus means is don't ever go to a Sunday school class. Don't ever go to a small group. Don't ever listen to a sermon again. No big deal. You don't need any of that stuff because the Holy Spirit's going to give you the answer. No, that is not what Jesus means at all. King Solomon said this in Proverbs 1, verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Don't be a fool. Don't, don't ever be the person that says, ah, I don't want to listen to any more Bible teaching. I don't want to read any more Bible studies. I've had enough sermons. I've had enough Sunday school. Don't ever be that person. I'm so thankful for so many of you, but I, I'm, I'm so thankful for the intensity of what I'm learning, particularly from so many of our more senior members. And I'm so thankful for how often in the last few weeks so many of you have talked to me about your passion and your hunger for the Word of God. That's how God will bless our church, when his people love his word and love to use his word. Don't be a fool and despise wisdom and instruction. This is what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This isn't a Bible verse just for pastors. Be diligent in your efforts to read and and to understand and to comprehend and to communicate the truth of the Bible to yourself and to other people. Be diligent in your love of God's Word. Peter said this to suffering Christians. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Listen, you don't have to have a a deep theological response to every question that a non-Christian ever asks you. But if you have put your hope and your trust in Jesus, if your joy is in Jesus, then you need to be able to give some kind of reason for why you have that hope. Horatio Spafford in his hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, says this, Lord, haste the day when my faith becomes sight. If you can't tell another person why you would love for that day to haste, then you might want to check where your hope really is. We need to be diligent in our love for God's Word, our love for the gospel, so that we will always be ready in any conversation to be able to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus, not just to say, well, let me let you call my preacher. You know, we have hope individually in the gospel. But there are going to be some days where you find yourself in difficult situations, There's going to be some times in your life where you might be pressed into a conversation that kind of caught you off guard, where you're challenged in a way that you weren't really ready for. It might be Uncle Reggie at Thanksgiving dinner, right? Might be sitting at the other end of the table and and starts talking politics, and next thing you know, it goes to religion, and and man, he's just pressing you. It might be that, that you literally are are at work and and someone's challenging what you believe. They're saying, You believe in God? You believe in, in that old book with all those antique, out-of-date, thou shall not? Do you really believe that stuff? Or maybe, like Martin Luther, you will find yourself in front of state or, or local or national officials. 
And they'll be asking you to tell them why you have committed yourself to Christianity. And on those times, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't worry. You are not alone. The Holy Spirit will help you. The Holy Spirit will help you. I read something this week about the Holy Spirit that I thought was pretty good. The Holy Spirit is, is not some mystical electric current that just like shows up every now and then. I mean, imagine going outside at your house to the, to the electric meter and looking at the meter and saying, hey, meter, will you help me with my sin? Will you help me with my stress in life? Hey, meter, will you, will you help me with my marriage and my parenting? Will you, will you help me? That'd be a little weird, right? Now, if the employee from the electric company is out there reading the meter, you might ask them, hey, can you help me with my sin? Can you help me with my stress? Can you help me with my marriage and, and my parenting? And the employee, you know, probably is going to give you more feedback than the meter itself, I'm imagining. But the employee may or may not be able to help you. See, here's the thing. that The Holy Spirit is not some mystical electric current. And the Holy Spirit is not just a person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is the, the third person of what is known as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So, so the Holy Spirit is God. This is who the Holy Spirit is. Don't ever be confused when Jesus says that we have help. Don't ever be confused when Jesus says we have a comforter. It's not some strange mystical electric current. It is the person of God. God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is willing and ready, perfectly able in every situation of your life to give you help. And I hope you caught those words that I just used. In every situation of your life, the Holy Spirit is ready, willing, and perfectly able to help you. Every situation. The Holy Spirit is, is full of love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. Full of it. In fact, every part of that is who he is. So question, have you needed any of those things this week? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Have you needed any of that this week? Well, the Holy Spirit has it in, in big box store amounts eternal, everlasting big box store amounts. It never runs out. And the Holy Spirit has all of those things ready to give to you. And the Holy Spirit also has the power to give you the boldness and the strength for the most difficult moments of your life. And according to all that the Scripture says, He has the answer for you in those most difficult moments. He has what you need in that moment. Now, sometimes in that moment, the answer is going to be fantastic. You're going to hear yourself talking. You're going, man, that sounded good. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Man, it's just going to be this fantastic theological response, and, and boy, it's going to be great. But sometimes the answer might be a little bit shorter than that. You might just have someone ask you, hey, are you a Christian? And your answer will simply be yes. That might be the only answer that the Holy Spirit gives you in that moment is it's just yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, that one-word answer has led to the arrest and for some execution of many women and men and teenagers and children over the last 2,000 years. 
See, the reality is we, we forget the truth of what that one word does when you connect it to being a follower of Jesus. There's one ministry called Open Doors that kind of tracks what's happening with persecuted Christians around the world. They estimate that every month more than 300 Christians are killed for their faith. And that sounds like a number to us because we're, we're sitting in, in the comfort of our religious freedom in our country. But, but just to try to help us think through, imagine if every single person in this room in the next four weeks was killed for their faith. You might think, hey, hang on, preacher. That ain't Sunday morning material right there. You know, that's, you're taking it over, over the edge. But yet that's exactly the language we constantly get from the Scripture from Jesus. That's the, the language that we see from believers who are persecuted around the world every day, things that we just cannot imagine, that we never face. It's important for us to remember that because we have to remember how Jesus invited us to follow him. This is the invitation from Jesus. He says it very simply. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, the call of Jesus, it's one of utter and complete devotion. It's not casual. It's not just joining a church. It is following the Son of God. It is complete devotion. But that complete devotion is not left alone. That complete devotion is stockpiled with love and grace and mercy and peace and hope and joy. The things we want the most. Following Jesus has all of it. And that stockpile is managed by the Holy Spirit and He is constantly ready and willing and able and desiring and delighting to give all of it to us at any given moment. To give us all that we need in Him. Again, the truth of the gospel for a believer is this reminder. You are not alone. You're not alone. Sinclair Ferguson says this about the Holy Spirit. The best way to think about the Holy Spirit is to think of him as the closest companion of the Lord Jesus. The closest companion of the Lord Jesus. So what kind of companion is the Holy Spirit to Jesus? Well, the Holy Spirit was with Jesus before the foundations of the world. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus at creation. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus at conception. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus on his very first day in Bethlehem. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus from that day all the way up to when he was 12 and, and he was in the temple. And the Holy Spirit was with him when he was 12 at the temple and he was with him all the way up until he was 30 and got baptized. The Holy Spirit was with him when he was tempted out in the desert. The Holy Spirit was with him when the crowds loved him. And the Holy Spirit was with him when the crowds hated him. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus on the night that he was arrested. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus when his friends denied him, when they ran away from him in his hour of greatest need. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus when he was beaten by the guards. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus when the crowds were shouting for his blood. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus as they led him away, making him carry his own cross when he could barely walk. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus as the soldiers nailed spikes into his wrist and to his feet. 
The Holy Spirit was with Jesus as they set that cross down into the ground and, and his body was lunged. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus as he was crucified for hours and he was with Jesus when he breathed his last. And he was with Jesus when his body lay in the ground. And he was still with Jesus three days later. He was with Jesus when the grave could no longer hold Jesus. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus when the stone was rolled away. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus when he completely and ultimately and finally conquered death. The Holy Spirit was with Jesus when he ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit is with Jesus and will be with Jesus forever. And Jesus tells you, dear Christian, that's your companion too. That's some companion. The Holy Spirit will, will be your teacher. The Holy Spirit will be your voice. The Holy Spirit will be your comforter. The Holy Spirit will be your helper. And so if you have denied yourself, if you've received the salvation that can only come from Jesus, if you are taking up your cross daily and following after Jesus, then, then please know, there is no hospital, there is no office, there is no school, there is no home, there is no moment that can take this hope away from you because Jesus has promised it. And that is through Jesus and through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you are not alone. You will never be alone. Never.